Revelation 22. And we'll give that our attention and trust that the Spirit is able to feed us this morning from the Word of God. I'm going to read the first seven verses of 22. We'll be looking at the first five Revelation 22, this is the word of the Lord. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the, pro- of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Our God in heaven, we thank you that the spirit of Jesus Christ has been poured out so that we might be able to understand the things of God, the wonderful gospel of God, Uh, the incredible truths of what you have prepared for those who uh, love you and long for your appearing. I pray, Lord, that the Spirit then this morning, uh, in spite of uh, my weakness and our weakness, that the Spirit would be mighty and and do the task for which he was sent today. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to ask you to imagine if you were a... um, if you were a young man betrothed to your beloved and uh, you had left her to go to prepare a place for her, as was the custom in ancient times, um, what, how would you want to encourage her? Back, back before there were uh, emails, some of you remember those days, um, if you went off to uh, college or if you went off into the military and you had a loved one back home, your uh, only recourse was uh, either the telephone or to write letters. Uh, boys and girls, letters are things where you have a piece of... <clears throat> <clears throat> letters are actual communications where um, you share your heart and your thoughts, and um, it's a wonderful form of communication. You have to be clear. You have to, you have to think about what you want to say. And if you were writing a, a letter to your betrothed, and you were far away, maybe another country, and you were preparing a place for her, uh, what would you want to tell her? I think you'd want to tell her several things. You'd want to remind her uh, that you love her and that you're, go- you're going to be coming back very soon. And so in verse 7, Jesus does exactly that. Behold, I am coming soon. You would encourage her to be faithful to you while you were apart. Uh, don't let your heart be taken away by uh, the other uh, young guys around, but stay true. Uh, Jesus does exactly that in this letter. Throughout the letter, he's been calling the church to remain faithful uh, to him. But I think one of the uh, things you'd really want to do, if you're, out pre- if you're away to prepare a place for her, you'd want to tell her about the place. 
You would, uh, you would describe maybe the village where you're going to live or the piece of property that you had purchased and tell her maybe there's a little stream that runs out the back and uh, there's a spot there for the house and, there, and there's a place for the garden and uh, you would try to describe for her what it would look like. Maybe you would explain uh, the house that you were building, what it's, what it's going to be like and there's going to be a porch over here and uh, you, you, would, you would try to give her a vision for what it will be like when she is, when you're finally ready and, and the two of you then are going to live the rest of your life here in this place. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here in Revelation 22. Uh, he, he's our betrothed and he's gone away to prepare a place for us, exactly what he said in the, the Gospel of John. And he's sent a letter to us, to the church. And, and in this letter, he's reminding us he's coming back, he's, he's encouraging us to remain faithful, and he tells us about the place that he's preparing for us. That, that this isn't just a figure of speech, Jesus Christ actually is making a home where we will join him and live with him forever. And so the vision that we have here in chapter 22 is meant to be received by the church as a letter from our beloved who has promised he's going to come back and we are going to dwell forever with him. And this letter, is, this, this text is meant then to motivate us to wait for him. Uh, the experience of biblical Christianity, biblical Christianity is uh, an experience of great anticipation for what is yet to come. One of the uh, primary problems that we struggle with as an American church is that because we have things so good, uh, it is so easy for us to have the horizons of our expectations narrowed down to the here and the now. And there are whole ministries and theologies built on the here and now. Um, your best life now sort of thinking, health, wealth thinking. That is not biblical Christianity because um, what we find in the New Testament is that, that biblical Christianity is saturated with anticipation for what is yet to come. Paul says in Philippians 3, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining for what is, uh, lies ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize of the heavenly call in Jesus Christ. And he tells the church then to do the same in the book of Colossians chapter 3. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Seek the things that are above that, that, that Christians were to be in this world, engaged in this world, but our minds and our hearts are set on the world to come. Peter says the exact same thing. Therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus wants his church to live in this world with this lean forward, this, this confident, eager anticipation for the home that he's preparing for us. And so here in our text, we're going to see Jesus telling us about that home. I've broken it down just into two primary questions. First, what will we have in the new earth, in our new home? And secondly, what will we do in our new home? First, what will we have in the new earth? Excuse me just a minute. Verse 1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. It's interesting to see uh, in this letter that Jesus 
um, he talks to us and describes our future home, but in symbolic language that doesn't give us a lot of specific detail about what the new earth will look like, but the symbols he uses resonate with us and, and create a yearning for what he is preparing for us. So uh, John says he, he sees a river, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Um, when what we should see when we see this river is we should see just abundant, beautiful, glorious life. It's a river of the water of life. If you lived in um, the Near East, if you lived in a part of the world where it's mostly desert, very dry, you, this, this vision uh, would be a very powerful vision for you. Almost nothing um, creates the, uh, the idea of life more fully than a river where whole societies depended on the river. The river was everything. The river, the river was the, where you got your water to water the fields and to, and to water the livestock. Uh, if, if, there was, if there was no river, you, life would not be possible. But, but if there's a river, then, then it is abundantly possible. If you, are, if you have a home by the river, you're tapped into life. And so this, this river that flows from the throne of God and the Lamb carries to the city, the bride, the life of God. So what is that life of God? Well, it is, it is the love and the grace and the goodness and kindness and beauty and honor and glory of God himself. This river, you see, is God himself moving through the city into the into the. Uh, the heart of the city, the bride, sharing his presence, his life, his light with the bride. And, and that life floods through, saturates, and, and, and transforms everything. The, the, the closest Old Testament allusion that we have here uh, is the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 47 he has a vision where he sees a stream flowing from the temple. It's a, it's a theme that we could trace all the way through Scripture. Remember, there was a, there was a river flowing from Eden. Uh, Psalm 46, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of our God. This, this idea of a, of a river communicating the goodness and grace and life of God is found throughout Scripture. Well, in Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel sees a river flowing from the temple. And um, as it flows, it gets bigger and, and deeper, greater and greater volume. And, and at the uh, end of the vision, the river flows into the Dead Sea. Now, if I've never been to the Dead Sea. Some of you, I, think, I believe, have. Um, but it's called dead for uh, a very good reason. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. There are no fish. There are, uh, there are no crabs, there are no mussels, there's no phyloplankton. Uh, there are a few, uh, there's some, some, a minuscule amount of, of bacteria that can live in that, um, in that salt water. But it is the marine version of the Valley of, of Dry Bones. It's just death to the nth degree. But in the vision, this is what Ezekiel is shown. 
The angel says, Son of man, have you seen this? And he led me to the bank of the river, and I went and I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region, region goes down to the Arabah, enters the Dead Sea, and the, when the water flows into the sea, the Dead Sea, the water will become fresh, and wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. And it talks about there will be fishermen casting nets into the Dead Sea because it will be teeming with life. That's what God does. That's what it looks like when God pours out the glory of his, of his truth and grace and goodness and love in Jesus Christ. When that's poured into this dead world, life happens. I was thinking this morning as we were reading from uh, Romans chapter 5, what incredible truth and otherworldly truth. There is, there is not a single religion, not a single school of thought in all the world that communicates those truths of justification by grace through faith that God sent his son to die for us while we were yet sinners. It, it is completely, un, uh, it's otherworldly. And that message gets poured into this world and when it does, by the power of the Holy Spirit, life happens. Life happens. Jesus says in John 4 to the women at the well, I, whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 7, on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. And so you see, the river is, the river of the water of life is the power and the presence of the truth of God being communicated by the Holy Spirit of God to the people of God, manifesting the glory of God, all of it mediated through the Son of God, so the triune God pouring himself out upon his people. That's heaven. Heaven is an experience of an entering into, being filled with the glory of the life, the sheer overflowing, magnificent life of God. One of the things that we noted last week is, uh, are the things that aren't in the new heaven and the new earth and, and the things that aren't there, there's, there's no death there. No mourning there, no crying there. Nothing that is accursed is there. We're told that here in verse 3. Nothing that is of the curse. Think of all the things that belong to the curse. This cold belongs to the curse. As I was um, this morning uh, just uh, standing in my office and watching people come in, um, um, just seeing stories and, and a heartache, really, tied to every every person and and they're, ver they're they're varied there's loss of a loved one uh, through death uh, there's um, illnesses right we, we all walk in this valley of tears 
We all experience the reality of the curse in our, in our work, in our relationships, in our physical bodies. But what this text is showing us is that in heaven, there's life, nothing but life, the life of God. One of the things I love about Michigan, in the springtime particularly, is this explosion of life. Do you, do you remember what it feels like? We'll be there again in about um, six months. <clears throat> <clears throat> but you remember what it feels like on an early spring day when the grass has really turned green and you can smell the ground again and the birds are singing and the flowers are pushing their way up through and, uh, and maybe the cows are out in the pasture already and uh, it just, it smells like life. One of the wonderful things about growing up on the farm is that you're just run over with life. Puppies and kittens and chickens and ducks and uh, new calves, life everywhere. Well, that, that um, sense, planet Earth, right? You, you watch the video, the, uh, the documentaries on, on uh, planet, BBC. Why are those so fun? Why are they so captivating? Because you're just seeing the um, explosion of life that God has created in this world. So take that and, and, and just move it inestimably forward where there's no curse at all. Nothing but life. The, the very life of God. That's what Jesus wants us to see about our new home. Everything about our new home will be saturated with the overflowing love and presence and glory and goodness and life of God. And that is evident in the tree then of life. Verse 2, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, there won't be any sickness in heaven, but it, it just, it's communicating nothing but health, nothing but peace, nothing but life. Trees have an amazing ability, don't they? Trees have the ability to take sunlight and water as they're rooted in the soil, and they can take sunlight and water and transform them into magnificent, succulent, soul-satisfying fruit. Apples, peaches, cherries, plums, avocados, figs, bananas, right? The, the list just goes on and on. The tree takes the water of life and the tree transforms that into something that can be tasted and eaten for sustenance. Uh, this tree of life goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where you'll find a tree of life in the midst of the garden and Adam and Eve were allowed to eat of that tree and it sustained them. It was the tree of immortality in that sense because when they sinned, uh, they are removed from the garden, specifically we're told in the book of Genesis, they're removed from the garden because they, uh, God is cutting off access to the tree of life. Right, so angels are placed, pasted, uh, or, or, or posted uh, at the uh, gates of the garden with flaming swords, so that they cannot get back into the garden, lest God says they take and eat of the tree of life and live forever. God has, because of their sin, removed them from the tree of life. Well, now that Jesus Christ has come and dealt with sin, and the curse has been removed, now God invites us to the tree of life where we can eat the goodness and the glory of God, where we can, we can be satisfied and sustained 
by the life of God. Now, will we figuratively? I don't think so. I don't think there's going to be a tree there you're going to take and eat from in order to right, live forever. Jesus is the tree of life, and in him we live forever in his life. But heaven's going to be experience of drinking from the river of God's delights, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. It's going to be, it's going to be all good, all glory, all God, all the time. That's magnificent. Jesus wants us to see, friends, what he's prepared. Because that, that vision, even though it's, it's, it's beyond what we can grasp, I, I, if the Holy Spirit is within you, there's something within you that says, that's what I was made for. That's, that's what I want more than anything. Thomas, Thomas Chalmers, an old Puritan, wrote a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The point being... That only when our hearts are captured by a greater affection will they be able to let go of an old addiction. How do you break an addiction? How do you break a habit of doing something that your flesh loves to do? It loves to do it. Well, you're going to have to fall in love with something greater than that love. That's the expulsive power of a new affection. Well, this vision of our eternal home with Christ in the presence of God, with Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, this, this, this um, scene of life and... Thank you, Mike. Life and health and peace is meant to, you see, purify us. 1 John 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Why? Well, because, because I want that. I want that. And I know the flesh is tempting me right now to go get this, but it's, it's so tawdry and cheap and nothing. I want, I want what Jesus has for me. This, this vision, as you see, is able to set us free from our love of sin. We can just look at our poor, poor, uh, failing flesh and, 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 and have sympathy in some sense, but also just say, this is what's passing away. What I want for my life is what Jesus has for me in a new heaven and a new earth. This will free you to get over your addiction to self, over your, uh, your slavish focus on the immediate circumstances of your life. As the, as the reality of what God has for you in Christ forever just breaks through and you start to set your hope fully on that and you set your mind on that, it's gonna change how you do life particularly the hard things. Well, what will we do in the new earth? Three things. Uh, first, we will worship him. His servants, verse 3, will worship him. Phil Newton points out uh, in his sermon that the term worship here is the term that would be used not for the priests in their activities, but for the servants, the, 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 um, the men who worked in the temple just taking care of things. So these would be the guys who clean out the ash from the altar. They would be the ones who maybe are filling up the, the uh, providing oil for the lamps. Uh, they're the ones who are doing the mundane, ordinary upkeep and maintenance of the temple. They're the servants of the temple. But you see, the fact that this service was in the temple, in the presence of, of God makes it an act of worship 
that transforms what might seem to be mundane, very insignificant and lowly into something just shot through with significance. People would envy the servants who get to clean out the ash from the altar because it's the altar of God. They're not just cleaning out an altar. They're, they are in a very immediate, practical way serving God. It is a holy act, a holy service to God, and only those who've been specifically appointed, you couldn't volunteer for this. There was, there was nothing you could do to make yourself worthy of this. You had to belong to a specific clan. You had to be particularly appointed to that task. So the mundane is, is transformed into something magnificent. Psalm 84, writes, the, the writer says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Doorkeepers are not that big a deal. But being in the, tent, in the house of the Lord completely transforms it. Imagine you're a taxi driver. Um, maybe even more, imagine you're a taxi driver in, I'll pick on my own uh, town instead of door all the time, Coopersville. Okay, Matt, you're a taxi driver in Coopersville. And when people ask you, what do you do? Well, I'm a taxi driver in Coopersville. Oh, not a lot of glamour to that. But what if you get an invitation to be the taxi driver for the Queen of England? Well, that changes things. It's exactly the same job. You drive a car. But everything has been transformed. You have a nice suit. Uh, you have a much nicer car. You, you get to be with, you even get to chat with the queen. Everything has been changed. Well, that's exactly what we have in the new heaven and the new earth. Everything is transformed in, in, in its significance, in its joy, its meaning, because we're, we are doing all things as servants of God in the presence of God, in the, in, the, in the joy of our wedded relationship with Jesus Christ, in the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit. Angels will envy you in the new heaven and the new earth. That's what Jesus wants us to see. Secondly, we will see God. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. God will be in the midst of them. It's really the most significant uh, piece of the whole text, the most significant reality of, of the new earth. We will see the face of God. Now, of course, God doesn't have a face, does he, boys and girls, right? God is spirit. Doesn't have a, the Father, in that sense, doesn't have a face. But the, the Bible does tell us that when we are in the new heaven and the new earth, when we're in the new earth, we will be in the presence of God in a way that we see him where the glory of our Father will be known immediately, where, the, where His majesty and, and, and His beauty and His power, His goodness and faithfulness, all of that will be known to us, uh, will be there in his, in his very presence. And His holiness, that is a consuming fire, will not be a threat to us. Angels, we're told in the book of Isaiah, cannot look upon the glory of God we will be able to see God in an, in, in an unimaginable way. Now again, primarily through Jesus Christ. Uh, so we're told that the throne of God and the Lamb, I think both the, meaning both the Father and the Son, 
that it is in Jesus' face that we, we have the full revelation and manifestation of the glory of God. And we will see Jesus face to face. We will be able to look into the face of the one who knew us before this world was formed. The one who claimed us to be his very own. The Jesus who loved us and bore with us who patiently endured. The one who, uh, as Paul says, loved me and gave himself up for me. The one who refused to let us go even when we tried to run away. We'll look into the face of this Jesus who guided us and guarded us, sustained us all through this valley of tears. We will see his face. Can you imagine what it will be like in, in the new earth as you review your life and you see all the grace that claimed you, that rescued you, uh, all that Jesus Christ accomplished for you, and you get to look in the face of the one who did it. I, I just can't imagine the beauty and the glory of that. And then finally, we will reign with him forever. We're not told again the exact nature of this reign um, the scripture says that there will be different levels, I believe, of responsibility given to saints based on their life here. But the point here is that every child of God in, in heaven, in the new earth, will participate in this glorious reign of Jesus Christ. So new, the new earth, the experience of the new earth will not just be in a, um, the experience of seeing Jesus reign. It'll be an experience of joining Jesus in his reign. And the glory and the honor and the power and the authority that belongs to Christ in his reign will belong to us as well. Maybe uh, an analogy th that we could think of would be the analogy of, of a sports team that wins a championship. When a, when a sports team wins a championship, um, what do the fans say? The fans say, we're number one. We're number one. And if you were on the sports team, you might say, well, uh, what, what do you mean by we? I didn't see you in the weight room. Didn't see you on the practice field. Didn't see you in the game. Someone has described a football game as 80,000 people who desperately need exercise watching 12 men who desperately need rest, 11 men who desperately need rest. And, and, and you might think, well, um, the team would have every right to say, we our number one, right? You got to watch. They would have every right. But that's not what they say. What do they say? They say, we're just so happy that we were able to bring this championship back to Detroit. No, they don't say Detroit because we don't. But <laughs> back to whatever city they're playing for, right? We just love being able to bring this championship back home to our fans. Part of the joy of winning the championship is to, is to share that joy with the fan base. Part of the joy of Jesus Christ is so he's glorified the Father in winning his victory. That's the ultimate joy of Christ. But part of the joy of Christ is that he gets to share his victory with his bride. That we are more than conquerors in him. Jesus loves that truth. He delights to invite you into that reality to share his glory to share his authority to share his royalty Jesus wants you to see the precious incredible things that he's prepared for you 
This is the home that he's preparing for us. Now, why does he want us to know these things? Because he wants us, friends, he wants us to persevere. We've read about the beast. The beast wants to destroy you. We've read about false prophets. They want to uh, allure you, lead you astray, make you think that participating with the spirit of this age is okay. He's warned us in the letters about just spiritual apathy, falling away. Jesus writes to you, his bride, because he wants us to persevere as we wait for him. Life in this world is hard. Every person is going to have their heartaches. The curse has impacted every aspect of our life, our bodies, our work, our relationships. And, and it's, it's impacted us more than we know negatively. We're sort of used to living in a fallen, broken, cursed world. And so we walk with heartaches and we go to sleep with tears. But this vision reminds us, you see, that we've not been saved primarily for this life. Jesus didn't die on a cross so you could just have emotional healing, nicer house, happy marriage. Joanne and I are slowly reading through a marriage uh, devotional by Gary Thomas, uh, Sacred Devotions, and uh, this last week he said, God designed marriage for disillusionment. And that's true, isn't it? Um, that you get married thinking, finally, paradise. Uh, and a week later, um, you realize this isn't paradise. Uh, he created marriage for disillusionment in the sense that we were made for what Jesus died to actually give us, a new heaven, a new earth in his presence as his bride forever. And that changes everything. See, that means that we can live with patient endurance in the here and now, receiving all the good things that God has given to us with thanksgiving in our hearts to him, with gratitude, but patiently enduring the things that are hard, the things that are, 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 are the, not the way they're supposed to be. One day, everything is going to be the way it's supposed to be. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that, that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that, that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Friends, Jesus is preparing a place for us. And so look to it. Set your heart on it. Set your hope fully on all that's going to be revealed to you when Christ returns. Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, thank you that you've given us this word. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us and that you've written a letter to us to call us to set our hearts and hopes on you and, and what is yet to come. Lord Jesus, this truth will transform our lives. It will drive uh, worldliness away from us. It'll help us to see our, our struggles and trials in a, in a greater light, a purer light. And Lord, uh, I, I pray that this, this really does purify us and strengthen us. Some of us, Lord, here this morning are so weak, so tired. And Lord, I thank you so much that Jesus says, that I'm coming soon. Hold on to what we know. Hold on to what is true. 
to who you are and what you've done and, and what you've promised. And one day, oh Jesus, one day, we will see it in all of its glory. May that day come soon. In Jesus' name, amen.